Well, good morning, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. Did you see all the cool stuff when you drove in going on with the building? This past week, I'm in my office on Wednesday, and I'm working on the talk for today, and all of a sudden, a 30-foot cement panel goes by my window attached to a crane, and I was like, this is incredible. So I run outside, and they're putting up the walls to the new auditorium, and I noticed that they're just big panels of concrete going up, and there's no steel to hold them. So I inquired, because I know so much about construction, to, to the Rockford guys, I said, um, should there be a steel frame before we put these large cement things up? And they said, oh my gosh, Yes. They were kidding, of course. I mean, it's just, yeah, I was like, oh, no. And he said, yeah, they're 30,000 pounds each. So on your way out, be sure to take a look, but don't get real close, is what I'm saying. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, we're in the middle of a series called The Story of Us. We're taking the eight weeks leading up to Easter, taking a look at what I believe to be the most important ideas that you find in the New Testament of your Bible. They form the foundation of the text and of the Christian faith. As well, hundreds of us are reading the New Testament for ourselves uh, during this period of time. And if that's you, we can, the end line, the finish line is now in sight. You've just finished reading week five. Week six starts tomorrow. If you picked up a book and haven't cracked it yet, hey, judgment-free zone. It's all good, okay? Jump in with us on week six tomorrow. It's better to read something than to read nothing. And so uh, welcome to the party. So uh, also to catch up, if you're new uh, this Sunday, it's going to tell you where we've been in the series. For the first four weeks, we talked about what God has done for us. In the first week, we talked about the resurrection, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. We said without a resurrection, there would be no New Testament at all for us to read. Uh, then in week two, we talked about the incarnation. That's the fancy Bible nerd way of saying God came among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And consequently, we'll never have a better idea of what God is like than by watching Jesus. And so as you're reading these accounts of Jesus' life, you're learning about the heart of God towards people, what he wants for us. Uh, that was week two. Then week three, we talked about the blood of Jesus. We basically said nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash us of our sins and bring us to a spot where we're at peace with God. And then uh, in week four, we talked about grace. Uh, we took a look at a letter written to some early Christians who were doing something that is very normal and natural. They were trying to add to grace. The idea is we're at peace with God by receiving the gift of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's just grace. Uh, but as soon as you start trying to add something to it, you lose grace. And so Paul basically says to lose grace is to lose everything. So four weeks, that was God for us. Then last week, we talked about what God wants to do through us. And a whole bunch of you sent me emails and thanks. That's super encouraging. I'm glad that was helpful. This week, though, we're going to talk about what God wants to do in us. Uh, and to do that, we're going to once again chase down a question that we put on the screen last week. And it goes like this. Um, if a restored relationship with God happens by grace alone, can't earn it, don't deserve it, it's just grace, then does how we live matter to him? Like, okay, so if I say yes to Jesus, like, what, what else does God want from me? What else does God want for me? It's a great question. A lot, a lot of people ask this question. A few of us even ask it out loud. Uh, and the short answer is yes, uh, but maybe not for the reason that you might think. So we're going to kind of unpack that today. The reality is God wants to revolutionize your life right here and right now after you've accepted Jesus. It's like he's done all this for you and now he wants to begin a work in you. And so to get us going with that conversation, I want to tell you about an interaction I had at one of my favorite places on planet earth, Barnes and Noble. Who's with me? Anybody Barnes and Noble? Yeah, I know some of you are thinking, he's going to say Starbucks. There's a Starbucks in Barnes & Noble. Come on, that's great. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, for like pastors, Barnes and Noble is like heaven's waiting room, okay? Because there's books and there's coffee and there's classical music and there's comfy chairs and you don't even have to buy anything. It's so great. So I was there um, and I was in the self-help section. Sometimes I like to read, you know, those self-help books that we all like to read. Um, And I was in the corner um, you know, I'm surrounded by books about, you know, leadership and exercise and what to eat and not to eat. And I'm like deep into this book when all of a sudden it happened. This college student wearing a Grand Valley State sweatshirt walked over to me and I'm like, I'm fully into my book. And he goes, hey, uh, where, where can I find the Bibles around here? And I'm like, did this just happen? Do I, do I have a name tag on? And you're asking me about a Bible? Like what in the world? And I said, well, um, you know, I don't really work here, but I said, um, you know, you're in the self-help section. And, and he looked back at me and he goes, wasn't well, the Bible a self-help book? And I thought to myself, this is like God giving me a great sermon starter right now. I was like, can I quote you on that? Isn't the Bible another? I said, no, it's not a self-help book. It's actually way way better than that. I went home and told my wife about it. And she said, you know, I think a lot of people think the Bible is a self-help book. And I said, well, then we're definitely going to have to talk about that because it, it really isn't. It really is way better than that. Let, let me explain. So self-help operates on the assumption that humans behave poorly because we don't have enough information. And, and, and we make mistakes because we don't have enough information. So if we had more information from the outside, it might change us on the inside. We would make less mistakes. And so a, a mistake, I went to our friends at dictionary.com, a place where you go for definitions nowadays, I guess, but they define a mistake this way. They say, a mistake is an error in action, calculation, opinion, or judgment often caused by insufficient knowledge. In other words, if I had better information, I wouldn't have done what I did. If I can learn enough from my mistakes, then I'll live better. I can help myself. If I read enough books, if I attend enough seminars, my problem is a lack of information. And once again, that information can change me from the outside in. And while mistake does explain a lot of the problems we find ourselves in in life, I would argue it doesn't explain all of them, especially when you consider that there are times that all of us have made mistakes on purpose, right? Like we knew it was wrong, we meant to do it, and we did it, and now we have a problem. And when someone says, well, well, why would you do something like that? And you say, I made a mistake, that really doesn't capture it because it wasn't a lack of information. Like in those moments, we get a window into the fact that there seems to be something wrong with us at our core, like at our deepest level, we're, we're bent. And so we're going to need something more than information if we're really going to be helped. And so the good news is that Christianity is not a self-help movement. In fact, it doesn't start as a self-help movement. Becoming a Christian happens at that moment where you declare your inability to earn peace with God by your good behavior. You say, God, I'm going to need grace because I can't be good enough I'll never pay off the debt that I owe. So Christianity begins with a declaration of inadequacy. You might say Christianity begins as an I can't help myself movement. Um, but, But there's more because maybe you've noticed when you become a Christian, you aren't immediately everything God intended for you to be, right? You still have those patterns and that lifestyle that you had before you were a Christian often gets carried over the line of faith 
in Jesus. And so the Bible, when you say, well, why does the Bible say that I would do the things that I do even when I don't, it's not a lack of information. The Bible has another word for that. The Bible calls that sin. When we do something intentionally and we know it's wrong. Um, it come, here's the definition from dictionary.com. A sin is a willful or deliberate violation of some religious or moral principle. Like, we knew it was wrong, we meant to do it, and we did it. We sin on purpose. It's no mistake. It's not that we don't have enough rules. It's literally that our vision about where life is to be found is twisted. It's not what it's supposed to be. We believe that we will find a better life by following those natural inclinations that flow out of our heart. Now, I've been a pastor for 20 years, and I've talked to so many people who find themselves in a mess of their own making. And if you say to them, you know, what in the world was going on? They would say, you know, when I made these choices, it felt right in the moment. It felt like it was, it was what I was supposed to do. But now, in hindsight, I see this was, this was terribly destructive. People who've shared that they've entered financial arrangements and they've purchased things that they didn't need and can't afford so that they would feel better about themselves. And they see it on the other side, but, but going in, they said, I, just, I, I guess I just, I was bent. I really felt like this is what I was supposed to do. Or their friends would say, you know, I really believed that happiness would happen for me when I, when I found intimate relationship with someone other than my spouse. And I began to think I was just bored with the commitments that I made, and maybe I even married the wrong person in the first place. And, and when I headed down that path, it really felt like it was going to bring me to the life that I wanted, but now I can see that it really, it really wasn't what I thought it was. Others that would say that uh, I believe that I can find life by numbing out, by abusing substances. And initially it's an escape, and then it becomes a trap. But like when, it, when I did it, I, I knew it was wrong, and yet my heart seemed to push me to do it. So like the New Testament is clear. Our problems are way bigger than we can handle on our own. The problems come from within. And, and that's why if we're honest, we don't just need information. We need intervention. We don't just need information. We need intervention. And the good news is that Christianity actually offers intervention. It offers us a hope to change beyond our capacity. Now, there's an early pastor named Paul who develops this idea to a letter, in a letter to early Christians living in a Roman uh, region called Galatia. Today, it's on the eastern edge of Turkey. And he notes that after saying yes to Jesus, there's kind of two different ways that you can live or two different ways you can lean into as you navigate life. And it's important to realize, before I show you what he says, that he's writing to Christians. So these are Christians who've received what God has done for them but have not yet embraced what God wants to do in them. Here's what he says. Paul writes, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So Paul calls that thing within us that does wrong, even when we know it's wrong, the sinful nature. We've already talked about that. So he says, you know, don't live by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And you say, okay, well, what in the world is Paul talking about? What, what, what is the Spirit? And Paul is, of course, talking about the Holy 
Spirit. When I, when I was a kid, I first was introduced to the Holy Spirit in kind of a strange environment. I was in Nuego, Michigan, which is in not itself a strange environment. But um, I was attending church with my Aunt Hazel, who was in her 80s. Uh, my brother and I were the only children in the church, so they kind of got the Sunday school program going again for two of us. Um, and our normal teacher was gone for the day, and so they recruited a gentleman to sort of be our substitute. He was a plumber by trade. Um, and imagine uh, how excited he was to learn that he was going to introduce my brother and I at seven and nine years old to the Holy Spirit. So he stood up in front of the class, there was, or the class, which was two of us, right? Uh, in front of the felt board, and, and back then we called the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost. And my brother and I kind of looked at each other and looked back at him, and, and I raised my hand, and I said, well, you know, ghosts are kind of scary, so is the, is the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost scary? And he looked back, and he says, no, 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 the Holy Spirit is friendly. He's a friendly ghost. Which, of course, my brother and I thought of Casper immediately. We're like, I got this. Okay, I'm with you now. We're good, right? And, you know, don't judge. We were kids, and he was a substitute, and, you know, God bless him and all that. So, anyway, uh, the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity in the Bible. So there's God the Father, there's Christ the Son who comes among us in the person of Jesus Christ, and then there's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers change in the life of of a believer. He's the vehicle by which God wants to accomplish his work in us. And so you ask the question, okay, what do we learn about the Holy Spirit from the New Testament? Uh, there's a verse that we looked at last week that I want to show you again, because we get a very powerful clue as to how the Holy Spirit works. In a letter intended to encourage followers of Jesus in Greece, Paul writes these words. He says, do you not know, and again, I don't think they knew. I think that's why he wrote to them. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who's in you, whom you have received from God. Paul says, okay, so the gods of the ancient world, they had temples built with stones, and you would go to the temple to see what God is like. Uh, The God of creation, the one true God, he is building a temple of living stones, of people. And he sends his spirit, not to a stone temple, but within followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is within you. And this is critical because the Spirit's power to change you then doesn't come from the outside in. The Spirit's power flows from the inside out. Well, Jesus gives us um, further insight into the Spirit during a conversation with his first followers. Uh, He tells them that he's about to leave, and, and they're not thrilled about that. But he says, no, no, it's better for you if I leave, because when I leave, my Father will send another to lead you, to guide you, to direct your path, he says it this way in John's account of Jesus' life. He says, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the counselor, and he's going to come live within Jesus' followers to teach them and to remind them. And the promise here is that he will lead us but we still have to follow. We're not robots. So the Holy Spirit comes within and prompts us, don't look at that, don't click on that, don't go there, don't say that, don't text that, don't like that, right? Or whatever. And yet we then have a choice to make as to whether or not we will trust him about where life is found. Because just just to be clear, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit will not change you without your permission. He will invite and then he will give you space to respond. God loves you that much. But if you're willing, God wants to transform you from the inside out. 
And so with that background, let's return to that letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. Here are those words we read before, and then I'm going to show you what comes after. Paul writes, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So that's the part we read. Here we go. Next verse. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other. So that you do not do what you want. And maybe you've had that feeling. You, you did something and you think, I don't know. I mean, I knew that was wrong I, and I did it anyway. So I don't even do what I want to do. I don't do what I should do. What in the world? And Paul would say, no, that's a very natural part of being human. There's a conflict. There's a war within you between your sinful nature and the Holy Spirit. And so you have a choice to make. And if you're going to change, you need to identify the conflict as well as the fact that you do not instinctively do what you want or should do. He continues. But he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. And th this is a little non sequitur for us 2,000 years later, but what Paul's trying to say is a Spirit-led life doesn't need laws. It doesn't need rules. Because a Spirit-led life is going to live the correct way because we are being prompted from the inside. Laws are made to curb destructive and all too often natural behavior. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Paul continues. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. And the little Greek word translated flesh basically is a synonym for sinful nature. Paul is saying here, if you just were to do whatever you wanted to do, if you could get by with anything and there wouldn't be consequences, if you just would go with what comes naturally, here's what would happen. And again, this shouldn't surprise us. They're obvious. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality impurity, debauchery, which is a great one because none of us know what it means. We're like, got that one nailed. Yeah, right? Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. One day I was teaching a group of kids from Florida at a camp and I accidentally said ogres instead of orgies. Lost the crowd. It was bad. <laughs> this kid in the back's like, Shrek! I'm like, oh, jeez. At least you're listening, I guess, right? Yeah. And then he says, and the like. And that's Paul's way of saying, etc. The acts of the flesh are obvious. If you think about it, you, you, you know. I mean, this is, this is exactly what it is. This is everything about life when it goes off the rails. And it's like, I spent some time just sort of reflecting on this list. And I said, is there, a, is there a common thread between these themes? Other than, you know, that flows out of us naturally. What is the common thread? And I would argue this. When you look at that list, uh, you could summarize it by saying, pleasure at someone else's expense. Pleasure at someone else's expense. When you give into the acts of the flesh, it's always pleasure at someone else's expense. Someone always pays the price. When you give into selfish inclinations, even when you get away with it, even when you're not caught, even when no one holds you accountable, somebody suffers every time. And moreover, all the things that have to do with a sinful nature are appetites. And so it's even more sinister because like all appetites, if you feed them, they grow. So the more you indulge in the sinful nature, the more it grows. If you say yes to that one thing long enough, it'll leave you wanting more, whether it's an appetite for sex or stuff or recognition those appetites are never fully and finally satisfied, and you find yourself frustrated and not fulfilled. So Paul, then as he continues, he gives us a little more hopeful uh, insight. He says, but, he said, the fruit of the Spirit. So he says, okay, we just talked about the acts of the flesh. Now let me point you to what the Spirit wants to do within you. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace 
and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And everyone back then reading that list and everyone now reading that list looks at that and goes, that's the life that I want. And friends, that's the life that we were all made to live. But it's not a life that comes naturally. We need intervention to tap into that power that will bring about the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says, God will produce the fruit of the Spirit in you. He wants to, but he won't do it without you. And you won't produce very well without him. It's, it's a partnership. And so, you know, the encouragement there is, you know, would you lean in the direction of the Spirit and away from the sinful nature? Now, check out what Paul says next. So he's just got done with the fruit of the Spirit, and he says, against such things, there is no law. It's like there's no law against things like love and peace because there doesn't need to be, right? Can you imagine a world where there was like too much patience and kindness? We've got to get this under control. Like this is, this is not okay. Just imagine a community where there's no need for law because the disposition of every human heart was, you know, I'm not just here for me, I'm here for you. And in that arrangement, I mean, we could figure anything out. We could solve any problem. We, we could sleep at night without fear. The other thing that police would have to do is they'd have to be there at four-way stops directing traffic because everybody would sit, come to the, at the same time and go, no, you can go. It's good. No, you can go. And you, no one can honk because everybody's patient, right? It's just like, oh my goodness. That's against such things. There's no law. There's no need for law. Paul concludes this section with this encouragement. He says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And the image that comes to me is like your Grand Haven, summertime, you're walking along the beach and there's someone walking in front of you and they're showing you the path and you just follow one moment at a time, one day at a time, one decision at a time. You just allow God to lead your life. And so Paul says to them, since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. He says, God wants to invite you into a less selfish existence. Because you've accepted what he has done for you, he is inviting you to begin to allow him to work in you. And, I, and I've been a Christian for most of my life, and I, and I run into people every so often that just seem filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And, and what's fascinating about them is is the way that they captivate me and others because they're a non-anxious presence in the world. Instead of approaching every day, scrambling to make sure they get enough for themselves, they get up in the morning and they basically ask the question, whom would God have me love today? And at one level, the answer is everybody, right? But, but how might God move through my life today as I turn away from selfish inclination and I just listen to the prompting of his spirit. People that live this way are countercultural and they're captivating. So as we close, what I want to do is just give you a couple of questions. Um, just to maybe get the conversation started if you go to lunch after this or with whoever you do life with. Uh, question number one goes like this. Have you been trying and failing to help yourself by yourself? Have you been trying and failing to help yourself by yourself? And deep down, you know, you don't have what you need. And it's more than a lack of information. And if that's you and you're here this morning, uh, this is good news for you. 
Because there is help available from the God who made you and who knows you and who loves you more than you can imagine. Christianity begins with a proclamation of inadequacy. It's when we acknowledge, you know, God, I'm not good enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I made a mess of my life and I need help. I don't just need information. I need intervention. I'm I'm not strong enough to deal with my sinful nature, but I know you are. And so would you come live within and guide me and give me the courage to trust you about where life is found? And as I do, may I live a changed life. It's often a moment like that where God begins to do his deepest work. It's that moment when we realize we don't have what it takes, that we need help. There's a famous Swiss theologian named Karl Barth, and uh, he, many argue he was the most influential Protestant theologian of the 20th century. So uh, he wrote this one day, and I love this. He said, when we are at our wit's end for an answer, then the Holy Spirit can give us an answer. But how can he give us an answer when we're still well supplied with all sorts of answers on our own? Maybe some of you, that's, that's what you needed to hear this morning. You, you came and you're just, God, I made a mess. I don't, I don't know what's next. And maybe just the invitation to let go and to invite him in and then to allow him to lead. And, and then that may actually begin the work of God in you. So that, that's question number one. Question number two, um, if you're a Christian, and this is for you know all of us that are in the room that, profess faith in Jesus, are you keeping in step with the Spirit? Have you ever really seriously considered that God has done so much for you and you've received it, but that God wants to do something in you? And and maybe you're here this morning and you know that there are some things that need to change. It's not an issue of agreement, but you find yourself saying to God, I know that needs to change, but I'm just not now. Like, we'll, we'll totally do it later. Like, I got that. I mean, yeah, I understand, I agree, but not now, later. And if that's you, I would just encourage you to maybe seriously consider what it would look like to make the change now, to keep in step with the Spirit. Because if you don't keep in step with the Spirit, you are delaying coming into the sort of life that God has for you. So where are you feeling nudged to move away from selfishness? Because your best life really does happen at the intersection of your faith and God's faithfulness. And he is faithful, and he's waiting to partner with you to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life, for you to be the person he made you to be. Friends, the Christian life is not a self-help movement. It's better than that. Because the New Testament invites us not just to take in more information, but provides intervention. Would you stand? I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, um, we just say thank you. When we consider the scope of your plans to rescue us, not only from the life after this life, but for life right here and right now, uh, we cannot help but stand in awe of your love. Thank you for providing a way where there was no way. Thank you for offering us the gift of your spirit. I pray that as hopefully this week a whole bunch of us do some inventory, 
we identify things that need to be changed, I pray that you'd give us courage to trust you, to follow you. And as we do, may we tap into that life that is really life. The life that you had in mind when you created us, the life that you had in mind when you sent Jesus among us. So we ask for your grace and your peace to be on us all. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week. We live here. Oh.